0: Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanish. To Latino Stories, I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Anel Flores. Anel Flores is a trans, queer, Latina, Latinx writer, artist, activist, entrepreneur, and coach. She has been a distinguished writer in residence at Our Lady of the Lake University, fellow with the Southwest Folklife Alliance, and has received the Catalyst for Change Award, Women's Advocate of the Year, the Nebrija Creadores Award. Best of San Antonio author, Chingona and Lit Award, among others. Congratulations for all of those uh, recognitions and awards. Bienvenida a este episodio, Anel. Gracias,
1: gracias. Thank you for having me here. I mean, I'm really, really happy to be here.
0: Great. Um, Anel. so before we started uh, recording, you mentioned that you grew up in the RGV in the Valley. So talk to us about growing up in South Texas and the borderlands.
1: Wow. Well, I, you know, it's, it's one thing that I have to say in the the end of your question is, well, if beginning is like, talk to me about growing up in South Texas and, and in the RGV and then the end of the sentence is on the borderlands. It kind of feels like my life in a way. It's like, I grew up in the RGV, you know, uh, tripping on river rock, river rocks and, and touching the trees and, and playing with those and, <laughs> and eating mesquitas just at the right time. And, um, and then later in my life, learning that word on the borderlands, right? What is that? And, uh, you know, living there and, and being there and spending time there, I think the, you know, the last 20 years of my life, I go back for funerals, right? I go back yeah. for baptisms. I go back for weddings. I go back for the asada of the tia who's coming in from Monterrey or from La Ciudad de Mexico, you know, and, um, and most recently I've gone back to write to spend most of my time um, writing my last, my second novel, which comes out in February, I've been going back to do that. Um, I've been going back to take photos. I've been going back to walk. I've been going back to explore the birds and the trees and the land. Mm. Uh, And that's what the valley was like growing up, you know, was just not even realizing that, um, I was being prepared, um, by its natural kind of meditative, State that the palmas blowing in the wind and the seagulls passing by, and the ocean breeze and the sound of the big, you know, the tree, everything. I mean, you, the the sound of every animal that you can hear in that, you know, on that landscape is meditative. You know, it it growing up there prepared me in a way that I didn't know. To, to stay meditative, to stay, mm-hmm. to be a better listener, I think, to be a better, to have a sharper eye at, um, at what I see, to see trees better, to see stars more, to see, to mm-hmm. stop more, to talk to abuelitas more, to talk to my abuela more, to, you know, to, you know, say buenos dias, you know, more often to right. like for a plate to my neighbor. I mean, that's what the valley taught me, you know, I mean, really. And, um, And it's something that even though there was a moment in time, you know, in my early, maybe not, maybe there was a minute in my twenties there, you know, when you just kind of, it's all about yourself and you don't think anyone's right. And you want to kind of erase everything in your life. It was like, there was a minute there where I forgot all that. And then there was like that minute again, where I was like, oh no, that's who I am. That's what I believe in. Of course, (laughs) I'm sure that was brought upon by Gloria Saldua and all these other amazing folks that, um, that really ignited my, my light again. So yeah, that's what it was like and beautiful and wonderful, really, really, really wonderful. I'm very lucky um, to have grandparents and grand, you know, great grandparents that um, were growing cilantro in the backyard and limones and, and blackberries and you know, dunas and, and the big old dog that I got to jump on top of, you know, that's basically the RGV for me. And, <laughs> yeah. Passing back and forth, uh, cr- going across whenever we wanted with, with a lot of freedom, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of deliciousness and happiness. So yeah, I could go it's on great. really for the whole podcast. On that.
0: <laughs> and you grew up also speaking both languages, Spanish. Well,
1: and- yes and no. I mean, yes and no. I mean, actually, no. I, I grew up listening to Spanish uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, from my grandparents and my great grandparents and my tias and tios when they were like away from us. Uh, uh-huh. But they my my parents generation, they're 82 now, um, were 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 part of the generation of, of parents that came here. Um, and were punished were hit on the hands uh, my father knelt on bottle caps when speaking Spanish mm-hmm. you know lots of punishments so um I knew I didn't know those stories till later because they were you know wanting to protect us from those those moments in their life but what they also did was try to protect us from that punishment um, in a way that and keeping our the Spanish from us in a, in a way um that we spoke to English they spoke English to us and they were very adamant about being us being in like English schools that were like all speaking English, learning all the language, mainstreaming us here, uh, mainstreaming so that we can get the best education. What does that mean for us? You know, all of that. So mm-hmm. I was, I mean, I'm 47. So I'm of that generation where it's like the kids were born, put them in the best school. And then what ends up happening is that it ends up being the white school or on the white side of town. And you're like, right. who am I? so by around sophomore year, I found myself Sophomore year of high school, I found myself kind of spinning, and uh, this like self medicating, like doing drugs, and just hanging around with the wrong people—not my people, you know—not mm. my primos and primos type of primas type of people. Like that's who I should have been with, mm. but I wasn't. Um, and after sophomore year, I uh, I had a really bad car accident, uh, and I flipped over four or five times was in the hospital for a long time and, and I just woke up and I was like, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I told my parents, you know, I don't want to be in public school. I don't want to be around these people. Like, I don't want to do this. I want, like, I don't know what I want, but randomly I enrolled myself in Catholic school, which was kind of ironic because I'm a, you know, huge queer, Uh, but you know, I went to a girl's school and again, and all these girls were I mean, they felt like they were from the valley. They were like my primas. They became my family. And I was able to kind of like rest in that feeling. Um, I'm also from a matriarchal family. So it worked for me to go to an all-girls school. Uh, it mm-hmm. felt more nurtured and nourished in that way and was able to reconnect with um, my identity. And they were all chicanas too around me. So I was like, oh, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be hanging around with. You know, <laughs> badass chicanas. That's right. Okay. You know, so I did speak Spanish and didn't. And then, um, went to Mexico my junior year for art school and, um, brought my Spanish back. I like started mm-hmm. speaking Spanish again, junior, senior year of high school.
0: That's
1: great. That's great.
0: Uh, so when did you know you wanted to be a writer?
1: Uh, you know, I, when did I know I wanted to be a writer? I, I was a, an artist, um, starting probably around sixth or seventh grade. And mm-hmm. now as I work on my graphic memoir, I'm I'm really focusing on when that moment was that I became a writer. And it's for me when I wanted to start beginning to tell a story, I think is more for me because I didn't realize I was, you know, the imposter syndrome is real, you know. And so um in middle school, I was an artist to tell stories, and those stories were of my queer body,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but and they were still vague enough because they were paintings and drawings to not necessarily say, hey, I'm queer. They were just like paintings that I knew were queer representations of who I was and what I was experiencing. Um, and then eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade continue. I was drawing, I was painting, drawing, painting, drawing, painting. And then I um, my senior year i i, I was kind of convinced by my best friends i was again i was kind of like a bad kid or whatever they would call a bad kid like smoking in the back <laughs> of the school i mean i passed my classes i did my best you know um but i was like the bad i was just all over the place and so my senior year uh the dean of academics kind of made a, a little bit of a deal with me and and i was in a little bit of trouble and i knew i needed to get in better with her and then my my you know, I was queer. My mom and dad were not happy at all. And my, and I was going to graduate from high school. And my best friends wanted to take creative writing with the Dean of academics, the the Mm. person who was like, she was not having it with me anymore. And I was, they were like, take the class with me. And I'm like, why would I take creative writing? Like, I don't even like to read. I told my friends, you know, I was like, I just want to paint and draw. If I can graduate from high school, I'll be happy. That's all I need. Mm. Well, things took a turn. You know, my parents found out I was queer. They kind of stopped talking to me. Um, I mean, they did. And my, my best friends were enrolled. They were already applying for college. They were enrolled in college. They were going to take this creative writing class. And then I'm like, well, I, I, you know, the only safe place to think do is be with them my senior year. I was kind of living mostly with my best friends, staying with her a lot. I took creative writing with the Dean of academics and That semester, she had us writing and writing and writing and writing in our journal. She was giving us all these books, but these books that she was giving me mostly by white authors that and I was kind of like, no, I don't like this. I don't like this. I was was, I've always been really honest and outspoken. So I was like, no, I don't like this book. And finally, she gave me Mango Street, which is a cliche at this point, but Mm -hmm. it's all good. You know, it's still the book that that shifted a lot um, for literature in terms of like expanding the canon. But I read Mango Street and then I just was kind of let loose after that. I was like, what? And then I found Castillo and then I found Anais Nin and then I found Colette and then I found, you know, all these amazing writers. But in that senior year class, my teacher um, at the end and, you know, I turned in my portfolio and at the end of the portfolio, she said, you are a writer. She literally wrote it in my book. I still have it. I was in 1994 and I thought... Oh, dang, I have an identity, you know, um, the power of teaching really the power of our words. And I just want to cry now the following mm-hmm. December, she, she passed, um, of, of uh, lymph- lymphatic cancer, but it changed my life, you know, right. and I was enrolled in college, like I said, cause I needed a place to live more than anything. And, um, I was dorming and I kept writing and, uh, that that's what happened. She told me I was a writer. And so I took it on. You know, mm-hmm. I learned the power from her yeah. own words. And, uh, so
0: you began
1: painting before you um, started writing. I was. It felt like um, it was just a more of um just felt like a more comfortable, safer space for me to be in to paint. And then mm-hmm. uh, the writing just became just a more cinematic space, a more honest space, you know, mm-hmm. being able to explore.
0: Um. What were the uh, topics, themes that you wanted to, to write about, to explore? Um, I imagine um, your own identity as you were trying to, you know, come to terms and, and how to express that and how to talk about it. Um, what other things were important to you to, to write about?
1: Well, the most, I mean, like I mentioned, the love that I have for home, right? For our land and for the earth and, and for what our grandmothers have taught us, you know, I. For me, and and still, every single moment, it's everything I write is about how do we connect? How do we reconnect? um, Queerness and identity and love and huge love, open love, heart love, like deep love. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we, you know, keep it lit? How do we connect this queer love with, with um, tradition? With you know, what I've learned from home, what I've learned as a, as a Chicana person, as a, as a Mexican American person, as a Mexican person, as a, you know, first generation person. Um, And what drives me every day is that I still have, you know, yesterday I'm mentoring a senior in high school who's, you know, wants to do is writing a poetry collection. And she's like, I want to, or they, I'm sorry, they're, they're like, I want to give it to, you know, us on Press. She was telling me, they were telling me yesterday, I want to give it to them like right before I graduate. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. She's like, they are this tiny little human. And yet I'm mentoring them to write this poetry collection. And they said, and I'm asking about this one piece. And then they were like, oh, I can't write that because my grandmother's still alive, you know, and this is a queer mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And I, I, my mom has asked me not to talk about it. And my mom, you know, and I'm like, dang, y'all, like it's 2023. And that mm-hmm. was me in 1993. That was uh-huh. 30 years ago. I want to keep writing this work and I'm going to be, and I know the power of our words and I know the power of our language. And I know that there are thousands of language that are languages that are disappearing. And, and I'm aware that 5,000 of our medicines were just completely colonized and destroyed and taken from us. I know that our bodies have been, excuse to say this, like, and I'm going to say like trigger warning, our bodies have been raped and, Mm -hmm. and hurt and taken. Our identities have just been like, tried to be buried. And I'm going to keep writing how beautiful our identity is, how beautiful our roots are, how beautiful our land is, how beautiful our medicine is, and how queer it also can be at the very same time. And how, you know, that's what drives me every day. It's like, when I wrote Empanada, my parents were still like, not talking to me as much, but we had dinner. And, um, they asked me why did you have to include your grandmother in the book and i and i was in my 20s and i was just like you know like did you ever look at her did you did you know like she didn't tell you anything do you even know her stories like she never spoke she was trained to be quiet she was trained to cook all day i told them but then you'd walk into the kitchen sometimes and she'd have tears just going down her face with no words like That's a that's a real thing for a lot of grandmothers and a lot of women. Yeah. A lot of women who are 70 suddenly and they're like, what happened to my life? Um, Even younger, I remember my
0: mom a couple, you know, on a couple of occasions, just like not expressing what was happening to her. What memories, you know, uh, came back to her and of sadness. Right. And and I would see her crying and, and I and she wouldn't talk. She wouldn't talk. She was just like, so I I learned to, to just kind of be there in silence or maybe walk away sometimes to give her that space. But, um, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that is very true what you're saying of our, of our families, of our, the women in our families.
1: And I, and I don't want that. I don't want that for my children. I mean, I have two daughters now. I didn't want it for myself. I didn't want it for all of my students when I was a teacher and I don't want it for my own daughters. And I don't want it for my granddaughters. I don't want it for my gay or trans friends. I don't want it. We have a beautiful language. And, um, and I, when I say language, I just mean story. We have beautiful stories. I mm-hmm. want to hear them. I want to tell them. I want, you know, and grief is also okay. It's beautiful.
0: Right. So um, as you mentioned, you began uh, painting. Um, how did you later connect that to your writing or or was it you know that part an extension like sort of like the next step the next phase of you as an artist
1: yeah well you know I I think I there were there's so many things I think that sometimes and you might know this narrative but there are a lot of folks out there that say well you should just master one thing you know master your writing or master your painting or I mean I've had writers tell me get off the stage you don't perform or don't stop painting and just write every day. I mean, I've had that, all that I've had people tell me, you should only do poetry. Even when I was in grad school, they're like, "Uh, are you doing poetry or are you doing prose? I'm like, why do I have to choose? I'm actually in school. Like I should be able to do all the things I want, you know, you have to choose in grad school. I'm like, uh, no. So, you know, I was able to do both and, um, but I had to fight for that. So I think just like my writing and my painting, unfortunately I allowed them to be a little bit separate for many years and I also don't regret it I don't regret it at all I really I'm a great writer because I focused I have seasons for writing and then I have seasons for painting I, I paint a lot in like January February March I don't know it's kind of thing it's coming up um, and so and I and I so I've done, been doing that for many years but now that I go in February, which is my novel connected. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be a great book. Um, But now that that's going out, my next is my graphic memoir, which is what I'm currently like crafting at the moment. And that is like my absolute celebration of being able to put visual art and writing together. So it's going to be a hybrid. Yeah, it's a hybrid. So I'm like, what am I waiting for? So about three years ago, I was like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm against what everyone tells me, like do one or the other, you know, that's an old, it's not, it's not real anymore. We know that. Now the hybrid is the thing. So I'm putting, I'm putting the hybrid together as my graphic memoir and um, it's going to be poetry, prose, fiction, you know, little, little statements, quotes, um, drawings, paintings, watercolors, sketches, even some manga manga kind of design uh, comic kind of looking things, but it's going to be my, my memoir. Um, and it's about love, really. It's about the love that I'm talking about, bringing that those loves, the queer love together um, with love and tradition. And and of course, grandmother, I'm all about the grandmother energy.
0: <laughs> I feel like I've seen, I mean, that's, um, yeah, like I agree with you. Um, if a person wants to express, you know, themselves in different ways, the prose, uh, painting, you know, graphics, whatever. Um, they should be able to, because I feel like those things do different things at different moments, right? Um, And I think I've read, um, you know, books or novels that mix um, sort of poetry with um, short story with vignettes, you know, and all of that. Um, And me as a reader, that also does different things for me when I'm reading sort of like a mixed genre, right? Um, It touches different parts of of me, of who I am or, or how I'm engaging with the text. So, so I appreciate like what you're uh, about, you're working on now. I'm excited to, to read it and, and sort of tap into different ways of understanding um, a story um, that could, that shouldn't just be, you know, one way of, of, of telling it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, that, and that's the thing too. It's, it's like, I've had people ask me like, how do you um, like, you know, Like, why do you use so many different mediums, you know, or what, you know, what are you working on now or that kind of thing or what mediums you work in? And I'm always like, you know, I'm always looking for the medium that's going to do right with the with the story that's trying to be told, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, my grandmother, when she in the 50s, she had a grocery store in Mission, Texas, and it burned down And, uh, what was left was this little black receipt box, but in there were some late little pieces of lace she used to sell. It was a five and dime. So she sold everything like Mm -hmm. flour and medicina, pantyhose and lace, you know, like all the things, buttons. And so, but that lace she saved and I, I had that lace. And so there was a moment in time where I was like, this lace has to be like preserved forever because lace, I know is a woman's story, like women's hands make the lace my grandmother's story having that store my grandmother raising women my grandma you know just my hands making artwork and um, I wanted to figure out how to tell the story of women's work and so at that moment with the lace I started to make silver jewelry and I was imprinting the lace on the silver because Mm. I thought silver metal well that'll last longer than anything you know the paper might shrivel up the painting might be deteriorated but that piece of metal will even if it's in the dirt it'll still be there you know um and so i was finding ways and for me you know it's like okay that medium and it tells a story right of women's work Mm -hmm. and so yeah i make i still i don't make jewelry as much um i put that asleep put it to sleep for a minute so that i could work on my graphic memoir but but maybe I'll go back soon. Right, right.
0: So I went um, through your website and I was um, exploring some of your paintings and your your work there. Um, and so I was, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about your Mujeres Marcharan uh, painting. Why did you come up with this? Who's in there? Um, talk to us about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Mujeres Marcharan, Chadan, wow, that's so awesome! I love that piece, and yes, it's just it's um it's like a personal it's very personal for me because um I again I'm always trying to figure out how to tell the story of of women you know and and women who do work and I I'm just very I really am a firm believer I mean I'm queer and I I'm gender non-binary I still do use the pronouns she her and they them Um, I'm I do that. Um, with political license and personal license, things that I've learned from Lua and from Leslie Feinberg and so many other incredible um, queer bodies. And so for me, Mujeres Marcharan, I, will, I want to continue to honor the feminine Um, the divine feminine and also to figure out again how to tell that story of how do we stay connected to the divine feminine and for me to stay connected to the divine feminine is to stay connected to our ancestors to stay connected to our ancestors is to remind our young people who our ancestors are you know for me i mean even something as simple as reading cisneros I, you know, even though Cisneros is maybe, what, 30 years older than me, I think today's her birthday, actually. Um, I think she's about 30-ish years older than me, maybe 25. She is, you know, an elder for me. She's an ancestor. And so, like the abuelas. And it was someone like Cisneros who opened that for me. It was my grandmother who opened the magic of the mesquite. It was my grandmother who opened the magic of the copal. You know, it was their grandmother who opened that magic. And so, in this painting, Mujeres Marcharan, I took this photo of three little girls, probably three little young people, about 20 years ago at the Women's March, because I've been going to that since I was 17. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to take a lot of photos. I took this photo, and it's of these young women that were at uh, Martinez Street Women's Center. And they always march. They march every year. And now Martinez is called, um, oh, my God, I forgot what they changed their name. But I took the photo and when I did this art piece, I got that photo and I thought, these young women are now probably 30 years old, 25 years old. And how do they know who their elders are who have passed? How do they know who these women or these people are, these queer bodies, um, these feminine, divine women who have now they're gone? Mm -hmm. You know, how are they going to know them? And they're from South Texas. And I thought, well, it's through the fire of our of our mujeres that are also curanderas, who are healers, who are committing to stay connected to their ancestors every day in their practice. People like my wife, Erika Casasola, who is featured there in the piece. Um, and uh, so there's a there's Erika Casasola featured there. My wife, there is um, Reb Mari, who is a, a chef here in San Antonio, uh-huh. who works in you know, and is a danzante, and a curandera. Um, Dr. Uh, Susana Ramirez is also in that piece. I think she's in LA now, but she was teaching here for a while at UTSA. Um, she's also a healer in curandera. She's featured there as a dear friend and a wonderful human. Um, I included in that piece also Anzalua, uh Maria Ibarra, who is was my director of Empanada, and one, a dear friend. Uh, who passed away. And a lesbian, second of the couples of lesbians who were married in 2016, when gay marriage was legalized. But Nikki Valdez was also the founder of Dignity San Antonio, which is the the LGBT Catholic Church in San Antonio, which is really interesting. Nobody knows that. But Nikki passed away and actually is one of the reasons why I never, I didn't commit suicide, because she helped me get through my Catholicism and my queerness right through that time of my life when I was 20 years old. So she's in there. Um, Angela de Hoyos, the poet is, is in there. Semi- uh, I'm sorry. I'm saying it in Spanish. Artemisia yeah. Bowden is there. Who's a black woman. And we have a library named after her um, Sylvia Rodriguez who um, ran the health care, the downtown health fair, free health care for people for like 30 years. We don't even know she did all that, mm. but we should know that. You know, um, we should know um, Kenny McFadden, who was a trans woman who we lost, who was murdered just a few years ago um, downtown here in our downtown. Um, Sister Dot, who was a sister of Incarnate Word, who was also just who ran Women's Global Connection, doing work for women all over the world. Why don't we know her story? So she's there. And it's not only Chicana people, Chicanas, but, you know, I mean, I'm partial to making sure I include BIPOC folks. Um, and so my project is that this next year I'll print a third version of that painting. And that third version will be, I'll add more folks. I'm planning to add Greg Barrios, who was a poet for me, held the divine feminine in their body as a gay man. I plan to include, um, uh, St. Shimmy, who was a dancer and performer here at Jumpstart, and doing amazing work around um, femi- uh, feminine identity and and just incredible, incredible feminist work. So I'm I'm just going to continue. You know, I also included in there Lauren Ferris, who was a trans woman who did work for so many women and so many people here in in San Antonio. So yeah, that's for me. Like that piece is kind of like my my onda if you will. <laughs> that's like how i want to vibe all day is like yeah. teaching people about our elders you know if i could and i want to do it through artwork you yeah. know i want to do it through beauty i want to do it that way um so that's what that's well, there's about. a lot of that's people you mentioned one.
0: that i don't know uh, about so yeah. I, I need to go and explore that myself and looking forward yeah. to, to the next you know version that you that you paint so your your book empanada was also adapted into a play. What did, what was that like? Were you part of it? Were you, were you part of writing the script? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So talk to us about that. What was it like to then, um, you know, like you just said, your, your mom said, why did you write about your abuela? (laughs) So how, what was it like to then like perform, you know, that, um, that book or transform it into a, a play?
1: you know, that was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, thinking back, it was my healing, you know, it was how I, I probably, it was how I understood my mother, you mm-hmm. know, writing, writing Empanada, performing Empanada was a very trying because I, when I opened that play, I actually did it at the UTS you did it at UTSA as a performance in 2006. Um, and I did it before that, even before, and that was before the book, actually the play happened before the book, honestly. Um, oh. and I was performing it. It was just hard. And then I don't even know how to say it, but like and then when I did it at, at, at a Esperanza, here's the part that was like the most challenging was that my parents and I, you know, we kind of were, it was very, we were not talking. We were like, we would just at holidays, like, hello, happy, you know, mhm friendly Merry christmas i love you and goodbye and but we had no relationship because i was queer you know and that was not something they wanted to hear about or know about so i was doing the play and i was keeping them informed of what i was doing like oh i i'm performing here and okay and nothing no comment no like congratulations no i'm proud of you it was really that was really hard for me um and that's why it's taken me a minute to tell the story but you know i had opening night at the esperanza um and i want to say that was like in 2007 or so. I said, I really need you to go to this. Like, I need you to be there. I told them. And and, um, it was really, you know, they were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And, And, you know, it was just kind of sad. But I finally just was like, I need you. I need you to be there. I need you to be there. This is a very important day for me. Like, I actually have a stage. I actually... You know, it's I have standing room only like they're they want to extend the show like people are buying tickets like crazy. It's sold out. I need you to be there. My whole I invited my cousins. They were going to be there already. My cousins had agreed to cook like carne guisada, and do all this great stuff. And so my parents came. They came and um, what was so ironic was that I was performing. I performed the play as well with the with mm-hmm. the whole cast. The front row was my therapist, if you can believe it. My therapist <laughs> sat in the front row in the center. And she agreed to come to the show as long as I quit therapy. She was like, I can go, but you can't come back. Cause then we, you know, the conflict, my mother sat behind her, which was so wild. My tias and my theos sat in that second row and I performed the shit out of that play. Excuse my language. <laughs> and I, I mean, when there were tears, they were not acting, you know, like when the tears had to be there, they happened. And I watched my mom and I performed to her and it hurt her, you know, a lot. She cried a lot. You know, um, we both healed a lot, too. You know, Um, fast forward, you know, all these years, 30 years or so. And, um, you know, she was at my daughter's wedding a month ago with my daughter and her trans husband, which is Thank you, universe. You know, like we've worked really hard. She's still extremely devout Catholic. Beautiful. I love her for that. I love what Catholicism taught me. Um, So doing the play was an intense journey of therapy more than anything, you know, and art is that, you know, the art making is is the sanity is sanity. The being able to tell her my story at that moment on the stage, having all of my community because the rest of the audience, besides 10 seats, were a bunch of lesbians. <laughs> like it was just like queer folks, trans folks, drag queens, my, my queer elders, you know, my, you know, my mentors, my, my people, the team at the Esperanza, which were like fierce feminists, you know, like I was carried, I was held by that community so beautifully. And then my family was in the middle where I was the most afraid, but, it but that this like beautiful energy of that all being one at that moment was transformative. So I kept doing the play because at every turn, you know, every audience every time I had an audience and every time we had a platica, there was another few, several young kids that got up that said, you know, I saw myself. Thank you. I've never seen myself on stage. Thank you. In 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 Chicago, in Houston, in Dallas, in San Jose, everywhere I did that play, I had people stand up and tell me, thank you, for, for, for putting me age for the first time you know white people brown people indigenous people mexicans i mean old ladies that were straight i had an old lady tell me an old, old lady i'm not gonna say that's not nice an older woman beautiful woman <laughs> who i love who i love her she's actually a friend of mine's mother she's not with us anymore but she said after the play she said i don't know if i want to eat or have sex after that <laughs> she told me and she was in her late 70s at that moment i'm like Dang, I love this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Connected
1: with all ages.
0: <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah,
0: that was <laughs> great. So, um, Anel, you are working on a novel that's coming out soon, and then you are also working on your graphic novel, correct? Yes. Talk, talk to us about this and two new
1: projects coming out next year, I, I assume. Yes, yes. Well, the graphic memoir maybe next year, I hope, but... Oh. But for sure, uh, Cortines de Lluvia and Cortines de Lluvia is um, tells the story of Sol, Solitaria, who leaves the valley at around 17. And uh, she's kind of exiled from her family, comes to San Antonio, builds this huge, beautiful queer community of uh, trailblazing queers like hairdressers and drag queens and, you know, just amazing small business owners. And um and one moment, so uh, after her, you know, exploring life here in San Antonio, gets a call that her mother is very sick. So she returns home, and the novel is a, is about those worlds fusing together, and uncovering secrets about the valley, and uncovering secrets about her own mother. mother learning about her and uh, has a beautiful story at the end. Um, There is some trauma. Of course, there's an exorcism. It involves the Catholic Church. It involves a lot of different things. Um, There's a setting in the Pulga, you know, people selling in the Pulga. She's raised in the Pulga, like many of us who are from the valleys. On the weekends, we're working there. Um, And so yeah, it's it's a really fun story. Lots of uh, beautiful images, beautiful images of San Antonio, beautiful images of the valley and uh, and love between a mother and daughter. You know, this book, Cortina de Lluvia, is really a tribute to the love between a mother and daughter. So it's I love a, the title, Cortina's de Lluvia. Thank yes. you. I thank you like
0: so much. <laughs> I can't wait. So when is that scheduled to come out? February. February.
1: Okay. okay. Yeah. It's like around the quarter. Yeah. So yes. and you know, like publishing, I I'm thinking February, March, you know, somewhere, <laughs> you know, might be a tiny delay. I'm kind of being loose with that. But do you have a book cover for it? We are in the midst of designing it at the moment. Okay. Yeah. It's being I can't a, wait to see that all too. drafted. Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> yes. I'm excited. What the book cover for Empanada, was that yours?
0: That is my artwork. Yeah. Oh, amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> are you part of this book cover? Uh, I'm in part of the design of it, so I okay. I have given them several options for my own original art or a concept that I think mm-hmm. is also will work. And and um, that was one thing that I arranged before signing the contract that I would oh, be able to sign. Yes, that's yeah. good.
0: Yeah. And now tell us a little bit more about your memoir and memoir. So, I mean, you're so young. <laughs> Yeah, I mean to you know, be I mean, writing a memoir. Well, I'm
1: 47, so that's kind of you know, I'm there. I'm about there. And you're not an abuela yet. <laughs> I'm not an abuela yet. You're absolutely right. But I could be in a few years, maybe before 50. Uh we'll see. But um Pintada de Rojo or Painted Red um, mm. that is going to I like be- that title too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I can't get, I'm not going to even take credit for that one. Cause that is actually um, Antonia Castaneda, Dr. Antonia Castaneda gave me that title. We were having lunch one day and I was telling her, oh, I want to do my graphic memory, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, Pintada de Rojo, that has to be it. And I, she, I don't even know like where or why, but she just said it and I'm like, I'm doing it. Thank you. Amanda. You know? <laughs> And so that's the name of my my memoir. And um Pintado de Rojo is um the story of how art and writing has been has been a healing and a reconnecting of a reconnecting to my heart, you know, and how and and how what my journey has looked like. So ultimately what I'm talking to you about is going to be told in my graphic memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful stories about home and family and why I write, why I'm a writer, why I'm an artist, and why I believe that. Taking time to really create and work with our hands, and reconnect with our hearts, and reconnect with our memories, and our spirit, and our ancestors is really, you know, uh, I feel is is some, one of the most healing things we can do, you know, for everybody, you know, for the viewer and for the the maker. <laughs> yes,
0: great. Yeah. Anel, muchas gracias por esta conversación.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for opening space for us and making space for us. Yes.